So I want to do something. I've been talking about uh, for the last several weeks, uh, sort of the theme that I've been talking about is where religion really got off the rails, uh, the Christian religion specifically, where it really got off the uh, got off track was when we turned it or people turned it or the church turned it into a literal historical literal historical event and stuff that happens outside of us instead of allowing the stories to speak to us very powerfully and dynamically and mythically and again when i say mythically i don't mean in a sense that isn't true i mean in a sense that's actually more true because it transcends the history of it we know for pretty we're pretty damn sure a lot of the history that's in the bible never happened the archaeological record the historical records of other uh ancient societies like the egyptians like the babylonians who kept uh, meticulous records of historical events doesn't validate any of the biblical stories and i know when when people hear that they're thinking well uh the egyptians aren't going to document their own um uh demise at the hands of moses um or the babylonians aren't going to record um uh, you know prophecies of their own demise or whatever but the babylonians actually won <laughs> that war with israel so we do know that later on uh that there was a group of people taken into babylon uh and that there was a kingdom of judah because these things are recorded, but there's also other historical events that they can measure by. And I don't want to get into the weeds with that. Uh, but suffice it to say that scholars aren't dumb and they're not demon possessed and they're not, you know, out trying to make sure they angle something so that it supports a worldview of uh, the devil to deceive you, to prevent you from finding your salvation. Um, <laughs> they just have very technical ways of determining whether or not something could be historically accurate. And so the, the point is, my premise has been that the real value that we can take, uh, from scripture, uh, is on the symbolic side of things. And that I think it, there's some real substance. There for us when we do that. But in order to do that, we have to, uh, I, I, I just, in order to get into the story, the way I want to tell it, uh, the Cain and Abel story, uh, I need to give you a little bit of historical and political background on the scriptures themselves when the Old Testament or the Tanakh or the Torah, whatever, came into being <laughs> as a document. When it came into being as a document. So, um, there was a lot of political tensions that was happening between uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and what's known as the other ten tribes of the tribes of Israel. So it's important to know, a lot of people may not know this, but Israel was the term that was used for the unified kingdom in the Bible. And... So if you were an Israelite, you could belong to any one of 12 different tribes of people, according to the scriptures. In order to be a Jew, you had to belong to the tribes 
of Judah and Benjamin because these two kingdoms, let's do it this way. Israel, at one point in its history, split into two different kingdoms. One territory was held by the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the other territories were held by the other ten tribes, and there was there was this warring faction that was going on. Now, we know this to be more historically accurate because some of the archaeology supports it and other records of other ancient peoples that were prominent records these two kingdoms. But they were, um, they were politically at odds and like all politics back then and even politics today, religion was intricately woven into it. And so you had, um, various different religious points of view that were existent within what we know as the people of Israel. And you can find those even within the scriptures themselves. You can find competing visions and competing ideas. And that's one of the things that I wish evangelical preachers knew, that I wish they would teach their people, is that the Bible does not speak with a unified voice. The Bible is speaking with many voices, with many different opinions, even about the supernatural or about God or about who God is and all that stuff. I'm belaboring this point because um, the reason what, what happens with the scriptures and the book of Deuteronomy specifically and really the formation of Judaism, see a Judah, Judaism, it's not just Israelism, it's Judaism, um, is their centralizing power through the priesthood and the temple. That's really, really important. That the temple belongs in Jerusalem. That there was a temple in Samaria, and it was condemned as a false temple. I mean, the story in the Bible where one of the prophets goes and says, you know, you're not to worship here. This is not the house of the Lord. I mean, when you look at it, you could see how it's all political. And so what they're doing is they're centralizing one religion, one God, uh, one temple is really important, and the authority and power of the priesthood, and that is all happening in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the place that God dwells. Uh, you have to come up to Jerusalem for the feast. You should go three times to Jerusalem. Uh, the king's throne is in Jerusalem. See, if God's throne's in Jerusalem, then the king's throne's in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that they're now going into one God, but also patriarchal God, or Yahweh. Uh, God is a man. Now, this is really important, and there's a lot of really good scholarly work that's been done on this by various different Bible scholars out there. But more than likely, the Israel tribes were more into nature religion and folk religion and the divine feminine and probably had beliefs that would be reflected by the cultures around them, which ironically the Bible itself condemns. This is all important because this is 
what's happening. This is the circumstances that is happening when the Bible is formed and when it's put together because it's an authoritative document. So, again, I want you to understand that the Judah kingdom is trying to centralize power and usurp themselves over their brother, if you will. Uh, they're Israel. And they're trying to do that by saying there's one God, masculine God, dwells in one temple. You have to listen to the priesthood. They're ordained of God. They're anointed of God. The king is ordained of God. The king is anointed of God. And so, therefore, any rebellion against our political uh, wishes is rebellion against God. But there were other factions that didn't believe like that. So if you look at the book of Genesis, one of the things that's interesting, you have a lot of sort of folk religion going on. You have uh, Abram, you know, sitting by a tree and talking to God. You have Jacob building a altar on a mountain because of a dream and talking to God. It's a very personal it's a very personal thing as it starts out. By the time you get to Moses, this person Moses, now it's a national thing. Now relationship with God is happening on a national level. Now it's happening on a governmental level. Now it's happening through priests and kings. Now you can't just go off into the woods and hear from God. Now you have to go to the temple and ask the priest, and the priest will tell you what God says. Does it sound familiar? But there was still an existence. So so what they're trying to do, what I'm trying to say is, is that much of the narrative of the Bible is set to eradicate personal devotion, folk religion, and uh what we might call nature worship and the divine feminine to, to eradicate that, to change the narrative and to make it a very national religion, uh, where now, you know, nobody can know God, nobody can see God, nobody can hear God, but the high priest who goes in one day a, a year, he sees God and he makes atonement for us. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, like you can see that shift happening. So more than likely what happened was there were stories and myths that were being told uh, or being borrowed or stolen or incorporated from the cultures around them about human origins and uh, th- that were there to teach morality and things like that. And at some point these stories then were incorporated by a redactor or by an editor. It's a fancy term that scholars use for a redactor, someone that comes in and edits the text and puts them all together. And then it was redacted again and again and again and again. So, all right, shut up with that. <laughs> I'm talking to myself. What I want you to understand is there's a political context and a narrative that's being driven in the and throughout the scriptures by a political context and a narrative that's being driven in order to empower the priesthood and make them look like they are the one legitimate ones. At the same time, there's an undermining. There's an attempt to undermine or subvert these ancient ideas about nature and the divine feminine and things like that. So with that in mind, 
uh, just keep that in mind when we read the Cain and Abel story and look at it in a minute. But there's another aspect to the working with scriptures that's fascinating to me. And that aspect of the working with scriptures is that for millennia, there have been people that understood that what was put in the Bible was a coded language. It was a symbolic language. And this goes all the way back to the time of Christ, to the New Testament times. Uh, this goes back to Philo, the Jew of Alexandria, who took a metaphoric and symbolic look at the scriptures, not a, not a literal historical look. This goes back to within the Christian church, Origen, who also was from Alexandria. And remember, Alexandria at the time had the huge libraries that were repositories of, of, uh, the, the ancient philosophies and the ancient wisdoms, uh, of our origins and of the nature of the universe and of the nature of the cosmos. And we really got to get out of our heads this idea that they were, uh, that the ancients were stupid people. I mean, all you got to do is watch a, a episode of Ancient Aliens or something to see, uh, just, you know, watch some episode or documentary about how much they were able to know about the stars and the movement of the stars and the planets and the movement of the planets and the circumference of the earth and the length of the time of year. Things that the modern science looks at and says there's no way they could have known that if they didn't have telescopes and things like that. You know, look at ancient technologies and things like that. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that we get so arrogant thinking that we have arrived and we're so much better and that maybe we discount some ancient, um, knowledge is just, you know, from a, a people group far removed that didn't know as much as we know. I mean, think about how egocentric that is. So what fascinates me is that for millennia, people in the Kabbalistic tradition, People in the Christian mystical tradition have been able to read the scriptures from a symbolic, metaphoric point of view, so much so that in Kabbalism, they get into the numerology of different words, um, the gematria, it's called, the numerical value of each word and comparing them and seeing how they're similar. So there have been lots of people that have built up this this tremendous tradition. And the way I look at things and the way I understand the nature of reality, I do believe that things can be built up in the collective consciousness, in the universal mind, that then can have a current of power to them. And so that's the current that I want to tap into. I want to tap into that metaphorical current uh, today with you. So let me explain. So, so these guys, though, by the way, here's the point. These guys that interpreted the scripture metaphorically and symbolically, they understood that it should not be interpreted literally, that the literal stories were there for the masses. And, uh, some of the Jewish sages would say that if you interpret, to interpret the Bible literally is to be like a child spiritually, to be at the child level spiritually. And, that the deepest levels of truth about reality, about God, are found in the more esoteric readings, the more symbolic readings, the more hidden meanings that has to be revealed to you either by the Spirit or revealed to you by a teacher from mouth to mouth. Uh, I'm sorry, from, from mouth to mouth. <laughs> like CPR, from mouth to ear. In other words, the oral tradition. But one teacher to one student, here's the mysteries 
that we've dug out of these texts. So just two different approaches, something to keep in mind as we go into this. So I want you to understand that there's a flow through Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, all right? About, and it's, you know, supposedly about the origins of humanity. And because we took it literally, uh, the entire foundation of the Christian religion, the entire need for Jesus to die for your sins as a savior is based on a literal historical reading of Adam and Eve. I want you to think about that. I mean, you want to talk about the debate on whether or not there's, <laughs> do you want to talk about the debate about whether or not there was a historical Jesus who lived and that has has been argued in whole seminars and can be argued and been there's been books written about it and stuff like that because it's debatable whether Jesus of Nazareth the the miracle worker who actually started the Christian religion whether he was actually a historical figure and then there's a debate about was Moses a historical figure Moses being the founder of of the Jewish faith was he really accurate actually a historical Figure And so there's lots of debate going on about that. Let's try debating, was Adam and Eve a historical figure? How about that one? Let's, let's start there. Cause that's the foundation of it all. At least, at least from modern Western Augustinian Christianity, uh, you don't need a savior if there's no original sin. You don't need a new birth. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to have your sins washed away. So the foundation of all of it is this historical, literal reading about two naked vegans in a garden who talk to a talking snake and eat the wrong fruit, and that messed the whole thing up for all eternity. And so now the vast majority of humanity is going to suffer an eternal conscious torment and the terrors of hell because uh, because we believe that story. Um, so let's find the historicity for that. Let's find let's find the historical. I mean, if it, you know, anyway, I'll let that go. My point is, let's don't read this literally. Let's look at this. Let's look at what's actually going on. So if you were to go and read the historical events, the more historical parts of the Bible in, uh, say, first and second Kings and Chronicles and. Uh, some of the content that's in some of the prophetic writings, these are things that can be more historically validated, that can be validated by archaeology and history and stuff like that, right? So what you begin to understand is that there's this rage in Yahweh, there's this rage in God against uh, places, of, uh, the high places of worship, against, uh, there's mentions of Asherah poles, there's mentions of uh you know, sacred trees, and there's mention of um, uh, abominations being in the temple and images, images being pulled out of the temple. And if you look at some of the things that Hezekiah and Josiah did, they actually destroyed the, like, they destroyed the temple at Bethel. Well, that was attributed to Jacob, but it was a high place where they were worshiping Baal. And so... <laughs> The, the the symbols of sort of this ancient folk religion were threefold, primarily. The tree, uh, there was a belief in the world tree. I don't have time to go into that, but trees were sacred. Let's just put it that way. Trees were sacred. What is referred to as the Asherah poles. Um, you know, perverted preachers have taken and said that those were phallic symbols. Actually, what they were, Asherah was worshipped um, by being represented by a tree. So you have a tree of knowledge that is in the midst of the garden. 
in the Eden story. And then serpents were considered sacred throughout the ancient world. Uh, that was ubiquitous throughout the ancient world, that serpents were uh, seen as being sacred animals, um, but also um, they were connected to the divine feminine because they they live in the earth. They live close to the earth. They live close to Mother Earth. So imagine a group of people that venerate nature. Uh, imagine a group of people that venerate Mother Earth as our mother, as where we come from. Then you can see how the serpent becomes sacred. So right at the beginning, they're taking the sacred symbols of their political opponents, and they're turning them on their head. It's uh, the, the woman... <laughs> The tree, the serpent, this is what caused the problem. All that to say, by the time you get to the Cain and Abel story, you've got Eve, who's the mother of all living. She's a personification, if you will, the way that it's written there. She's a personification of Mother Nature. Personification of Mother Nature, personification of the Divine Feminine, those kinds of things. <laughs> I really got bogged down in the weeds on this. I'm sorry. Uh, I really want to get to the Cain and Abel part of this. Um, hopefully you found that interesting. Hopefully I didn't lose too many listeners or viewers getting bogged down in the weeds in that. Um, but it is important in the Cain and Abel story because remember, uh, so Cain is a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer, basically. And Abel is a keeper of sheep. And the word keeper there is used in the scriptures to describe the way the priesthood was to keep the offerings or keep the temple. It's a priesthood term. And, of course, we know Abel offers sheep lambs, and it was the priesthood. You had to go up to the temple at Passover so that the priests could slay the lamb. So you went from a lamb for a house to this was something by the first century that was done by the priesthood. But again, this is all a consolidation of power. So you can see this in this story. So Abel is being presented as the good guy in the story, if you will. Um and he's the keeper of the sheep, and God, of course, looks favorably upon Abel's offering, whereas Cain is the tiller of the ground, right? So, again, we're back to this being connected with nature, this sort of folk worship, this he came out of Eve. So did Abel, by the way, um, and there's a lot we could go into in that. Um, but you, you get the point. He, he presents his offering to the Lord, and the Lord looks favorably upon Abel's offering, but he doesn't look favorably Upon Cain's offering, and in the traditional reading of the text, Cain gets pissed off. It's jealous that his brother is more favored by God than he is, and so he kills his brother and he runs off and builds a city. Now, remember, there were people that were putting esoteric meanings in this, or finding esoteric meaning in this. It's been redacted, in other words. So there's a deeper level to the story. It's been edited, it's been changed. So let's see if we can uncover some of that. So, first off, in a close reading of the text, the impression is given to the reader, particularly in the original language as I understand it, that Cain and Abel were twins. 
Um, usually when there's births separated by pregnancies, it'll say something like Adam knew his wife and she conceived and brought forth. And then a few years later, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and brought forth, right? The way it's in the Bible, it says Adam knew his wife and she conceived and brought forth Cain. And Abel also came along. <laughs> so let's just presuppose that they're, that they're twins. Right? Now, Cain's name actually means wealth, possession. Abel's name, if you translate it out, actually means vanity, uh, something that vanishes in thin air. <laughs> Cain's name speaks to actual productivity and acquisition. Abel's name speaks to vanities and that which has no substance to it. So what if we look at the story in that way? And what if we look at these two brothers as parts of ourselves and even look at the figure Yahweh in the story as parts of ourselves. See, one of the things that would be really fun to do is go back, and one of the things I'm doing, beginning to do is reread through these stories and think about what if God in the story is that aspect of my higher self, uh, and what if I interpret these stories as something that's going on within rather than this exchange that's going on between a party that's objectively other than me. That if God is the all, if there is a universal mind or consciousness or however you want to understand it, whatever terms or words you want to use to describe it, if that is a reality and if that is true, and if then we are connected to this universal mind, if we are connected to this Logos, or if we are connected to what I'm going to call simply just the Christ principle, the divine principle within us, then... When we present to the Lord, if you understand where I'm going with this, it's an internal process. It's something that's happening within us. So from one perspective, when Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings to the Lord, they're bringing them, they're bringing aspects of themselves to the higher witness and consciousness that they are in relationship to within themselves. If that makes sense. So. It's sort of an accountability to self. Um, that's the best way I know how to say what I'm trying to describe. I don't feel like I did a very good job. Put something in the comments that let me know that you understood what I was saying. Um, <laughs> if y'all get what I'm saying, you know, put something in the comments there. So, like, when Abel presents his offering to the Lord, he's presenting it to himself. When Cain presents the offering to the Lord, he's presenting it to himself, and then there's more self-evaluation that's going on in this story. Now, here's what's really interesting. The word vanity is this idea that later gets developed or is developed for us in what's called the wisdom literature in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, right? It's kind of the conclusion of the matter. But... It's also this idea of, have you ever, okay, let's do it this way. You ever heard vanity used to describe a person? That person's so vain. You know, you're, what was that song? You're so vain. You probably think this song was about me. Vanity within the person or a person who's vain. What is a person who's vain? A person who's vain 
thinks more highly of themselves than they ought to think in the sense that they believe a pipe dream about themselves. So classic example, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Um, you know, like we all know that person who talks bigger than what they can back up or produce, right? Or they're always trying to impress people by dropping their resume and name dropping people that they know or people that they connected with or whatever in order to make a good impression. But you get down underneath the veneer, you get down underneath the mask, there's not really any solid substance to who they are, what they're saying. That's what I'm talking about with vanity. So what I'm suggesting that we do is we look at these two parts of ourselves, Cain and Abel, as aspects of ourselves. Cain is the producer. Cain is the one that can actually produce something, build something, acquire wealth. His name means wealth. His name means possession. Abel, on the other hand, is a dreamer of vanities, um, fables. Um, and I'm not just talking about like with religious fables or, but I'm talking about all right, let's be honest. How many of us have dreamt about doing stuff, talked about doing stuff, thought about doing stuff? Someday when we do this, someday when we've got this, someday when we've done that. And you just talk about it and 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 don't do anything about it. That's the kind, that's the able. That's what, that's what able's about. Able, able doesn't produce his own, through his own labors. <clears throat> the fruit of the ground and bring it to the Lord. He just goes out and gets some sheep <laughs> and brings them and presents them to the Lord. Also, you know, a big deal is made that somehow sacrifice is a good thing. Let's just talk about this aspect of it, that sacrifice is a good thing. This is one of the things that's so toxic about uh, a literal historical interpretation of the faith because what we've done is we've taken the brutal killing of a young man, the word excruciate, I'm talking about Jesus now, the, the word excruciate, not talking about Abel, stay with me, <laughs> the word excruciate means to come out of the cross, so the idea of something being excruciatingly painful is rooted in the, this idea of crucifixion in the cross, and we've said that's what love is, we have, we have converged, we have uh, combined, we have brought together in one image the idea of horrific sadistic, and I really do mean sadism, violence, and mingled it with love, and then said, this is the highest form of love that you can have. And then we preach self-sacrifice to people. We preach uh putting... Other people, like your happiness isn't important. Your glorifying God is what's important. You're following your own path in life. That doesn't count for anything. What counts is that you've been obedient to God. Your success and possession in life doesn't matter. What matters is that you were faithful with what you had. And, I, and I'm not trying to glorify success in some way to say that if a person has more wealth or possessions, they are better than somebody who doesn't. I'm trying to illustrate the principle of self 
sacrifice. I'm trying to illustrate the principle, and that is so embedded in Western consciousness because of the symbol of the crucifix, because of the symbol of the cross, because of Christianity, this idea of self-sacrifice. Listen, even the work ethic that is promoted in many ways in uh, in the Western world comes from the the reformers uh, and and it's it's just so many things in our culture is rooted in this image and this image is now embedded in our consciousness that even if we don't believe it it's still going to be something that comes up that we have to deal with so that when we start talking about self-esteem, when we start talking about self-actualization, when we start talking about a left-hand path where you uh, manifest the fullness of who you are uh, with authenticity, then we'll get blowback from that because it violates at a very deep level what we hold to be true about love and what we hold to be true about sacrifice, right? And so... um <clears throat> And so then that bleeds over into every other aspect of spirituality so that we always have something that we have to be at war with. Um, we always have, uh, if, if, if it's not the flesh, it's the ego. If it's not the ego, it's our lower nature. What is a lower nature? And how do we decide what's the higher nature and what's the lower nature? How do we decide what's sacred and holy and what's profane and evil? You see what I'm saying? And so it leaves us at war with ourselves. We're we're in a constant master-slave relationship because of this image of self-sacrifice, because of this image, this is what the best kind of love is. So we're constantly at war with ourselves. And so we see this in Cain a little bit. We see this in Cain because if when he presents to the Lord, he's presenting to an aspect of himself, and then that aspect is displeased and doesn't have respect towards it, now he's got, a divided self. Now he's got to be at war with something in himself. And that voice actually tells him, sin lies at your door. Its desire is for you in a manipulative way, in a controlling way, not in a good way. It desires actually the ideas of a ravenous beast that desires to destroy you. And then it says, but you must rule over him. Uh, and I could get into a lot with that language as well. Um, it's, so this this whole idea of dominion is built in to us trying to dominate our own nature, trying to make sure the right hemisphere of the brain dominates the left hemisphere, trying to make sure the spiritual dominates the natural, trying to, you know, all this stuff, it, because it's so deeply embedded in us that there has to be sacrifice and there has to be war and there has to be dominion and there has to be struggle and there has to be all this stuff. And we can become so intimidated by that. We can become so worried about that, especially Christians who are worried, is this going to be the will of God? Am I going to be out of the will of God? Am I going to be cursed by God? Am I going to be blessed by God? All this stuff so that we just stay stuck in these mental loops of vanity, of constant talking and constant dreaming and constant daydreaming. Someday we're going to do this and someday we're going to do that. And I know here's an idea, but you don't ever invest in the idea. You don't stick with the idea. You don't build on the the idea. Uh, if it doesn't work out in five weeks, you move on to the next idea. And then when that idea doesn't work out, you try to figure out what's trending and what's current within the culture. And maybe let's go out and hire another success coach. And and all that stuff is the vanity of this, the, the, the thin air of this able nature that's within us. And the only way Cain that can go out and produce anything is if he kills is if he kills him. If he kills him, 
Like, in other words, what I'm saying is, at some point we have to die to our own bullshit. <laughs> You'll never get anywhere in life until you can tell yourself about whatever it is, whatever problem you're facing, you'll never get anywhere with it until you can tell yourself the truth, the whole truth about it, and nothing but the truth about it. That requires that you don't spin yarns, that you don't put positive spins on things that are negative. There, there's a whole basis of research. Listen, listen, listen. I am a big fan of positive thinking and the positive thinking movement. I'm a huge fan of, if I were to say that I could identify and land anywhere spiritually right now, it would be with the New Thought Movement at the turn of uh, the last century, which really gave birth to this whole idea of thinking positive and optimism and and uh, all that stuff. I'm a big proponent of that. But there's also a body of literature that talks about toxic optimism where or the positive power of negative thinking, where being able to anticipate danger, being able to think through what can go wrong with something, being able to admit the negative side of a situation or the the challenging side of a situation and think about it and articulate it and work through it. There's real power in that. But see, Abel won't let you do that. Abel will keep you caught up in your own fairy tales about yourself. I'm not even talking about fairy tales about God or religion. I'm talking about fairy tales about yourself <laughs> and prevent you from going out and being able to, to create something. So it wasn't until Cain could kill his brother Abel that he was able to get free from that entire system so that he could go out on his own and build a city. He could go out on his own and build a city. He could go out on his own and be productive. He could go out on his own and reproduce. Now, this looks different for everybody. I'm not saying this to demean anybody. I'm just saying if you want, it's kind of paradoxical. If you want to live your best life, If you want to get to the next level, if you want to get past whatever boundaries you're at, if there's areas of your life that you're not satisfied with, nothing's going to change until you step up and change it. And usually that change is going to be resisted. So it's going to take a very strong commitment. It's going to take a very quality decision to move the needle in a direction of setting you up over the obstacle that you're facing. So you have to do the internal work, and that's what I'm talking about. You have to do the internal work. You have to get rid of that side of you. So there's two things here. I have to lose the idea of self-sacrifice and being at war with myself and this lordship, master-servant type structure of consciousness and spirituality. And... At the same time, I have to sacrifice my able. So that's why I said it's kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, you are sacrificing the idea of self-sacrifice, but then that in and of itself is a self-sacrifice. So there are no absolutes ever, right? Nothing's, the more I mature, the older I get, the more I realize nothing's ever black and white. Nothing's ever either or. There's always the same both sort of thing. So uh, anyway, I hope that helped you. I wanted to illustrate how we can take a Bible story and let it speak to us in a mythical way 
let it speak to us about parts of ourselves and play with it, how there's real flexibility. Like from this perspective, Cain is the, is the hero <laughs> slaying Abel and going off and building a city. And we can relate that to ourselves by saying if we don't get rid of our vain ideas and imaginations and thinkings that are keeping us trapped and keeping us bound in cycles that are keeping us unproductive until we deal with those, until we get rid of those, then we're not free to leave if you will, Eden, and move out from where we've been and build a city. Or, again, Cain's name means wealth. So the acquisition of wealth requires the sacrifice of vanities. And then you get to determine what is wealth for you. Wealth for you may be more money. So you may have to sacrifice some vanities to go get some more money. Wealth for you may be better relationships. So you may have to sacrifice some vanities about yourself. You may have to realize some hard truths about yourself so that you can change who you are as friends. So you can go out and have new rela- uh, better relationships or who you are as a romantic partner. So you can go build a better romantic part- relationship, whatever it is. Whatever wealth is, however you define that, however you think about that, you're going to have to address your able. You're going to have to empower your cane. You're going to have to stop vilifying the cane nature in you, if you will. You're going to have to empower the cane nature in you. You're going to have to slay the able nature in you in order for manifestation and self-actualization to take place. So uh, if nothing else, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you can see how maybe reading scripture from a mythical perspective, symbolic perspective, can empower us in a way that the historical and literal method can at all. In fact, the historical and literal method just puts us in bondage. Reading it this way can be empowering. So anyway, I have to move on with the rest of my day. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope I didn't just ramble. Put something in the comments. Let me know if you like this kind of content uh, or if you want me to, you know, Aaron, you were you had an off day today. That's fine. I need that kind of feedback. Uh, So just let me know. Thanks for watching. Hope whatever time it is for you that it's great.